Hey everyone, just a reminder, this is part two of the Fred DeMara story. Uh, we're going to jump straight into the story again from where we left off. So if you have not listened to part one yet, we highly suggest you go into the feed and listen to the episode right before this one. All right, uh, enjoy the show. left off was Fred was drinking himself to death in a uh, YMCA room and then eventually he found out that he had the credentials still of his good friend Dr. Joseph Sear who was Canadian so not being able to use Canadian credentials first mistake right there I know right (laughs) he thought the most logical thing to do was to join the Canadian Navy and god damn it did he do that Um, he marched himself over to Halifax and he actually worked in a hospital for a bit after enlisting and once he got there uh People were already eyeing him a bit oddly, thinking like he didn't really, number one, fit. But it was mainly because he was seemed to be French because his name was St. Cyr. <laughs> they were doing Francophobia on him. He eventually used his charm, though, and he managed to uh, kind of sweeten up a thing. Like one joke that he did to kind of like work himself into being good with the, the I guess, the English Canadians. Is that what it is? It's mainly English and French Canadians. Sure, uh, it's American well, yeah, it Canadians. Has to be, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> uh, yeah, one time they were just like poking fun at him, just being like, oh yeah, I bet you like a little bit of wine, huh? And he goes, no, I'd like a lot of wine. <laughs> 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 it just had a charm, then it worked. He got in pretty well. And then eventually he was assigned to a ship. And he thought he was going to be on Easy Street, but he was eventually going to find out that he would be one of the only people on this ship. So what he decided to do instead was do a little pre-prep before he decided to disembark from land. He went up to one of his lieutenant superiors and said, in a very esteemed manner, I have a challenge for you, sir. So there's a lumber camp in a remote area of Canada. It's somewhere outside of Halifax. And this lumber camp is short on staff and especially medical staff. Are you, are you doxing Canada by saying lumberyard in Canada? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know that lumberyard is the main place. Uh, but anyway, what he eventually said was, I, here's your challenge. Do you think it'd be possible for you to make a layman's field manual for these people in case they have some sort of emergency? And do you think you could get it to me within like a week? Number one, he is not the commanding officer. The guy he's talking to is. And the guy was like, Hmm. Of course I can. So within about a week, the officer turns in a first draft to him of like this field handbook of how to like, you know, take care of just this guy's like simple solution resourcefulness just continues to impress. I mean, not like like ignoring the social engineering of like, I'm not going to ask him to do it. I'm going to challenge him to do it. Right. Just the idea of like, I don't know what I'm doing. How do I get it? Oh, get the most knowledgeable person to write it down. 
and just like there's just something about but but you but you have the, to give him credit simplicity to the solution yeah and offloading all the work onto someone else but, well, incredible. but recognizing incredible. but recognizing the fact you can say hey i can channel this for for something that's useful so now everybody has this reference book so i'm gonna make it exactly. look like i'm doing something good for exactly. everybody but at the end of the day this is my this is my oh shit i don't know anything let me this is my get it's out of jail community free outreach baby yes so now he had his Rosetta Stone of how to work the medical field, pretty much, God. which he would bring on the ship with him. And he would be one of two medical officers on the HMCS. Imagine going Med- in an OR with a crib sheet. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> he, he would be one of only two officers, medical officers, on the Her Majesty's Canadian ship, Magnificent. And does that not sound like the most stepchild title for a ship possible? It does. <laughs> you can't be Her Majesty's ship. It has to be Her Majesty's Canadian ship. And this other medical officer... So we have our real Navy, and then we have our our Navy in training, our junior Navy. Yeah. <laughs> our Boy Scouts to our Eagle Scouts. We call them propellers. <laughs> it should have been the HMAS, um, but... <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> but... So he ended up on this ship and the other officer immediately picked up that uh, Dr. Joe Sear was kind of lacking and seemed like he literally didn't know what he was doing. He even wrote that down in his notes at some point. And nice Joe guy. does not seem to know what he's doing. <laughs> uh, Fred, as Joe, needed to figure out a solution. And God damn it, he has another good solution here. Oh, this may have been one of my favorite, least more, least ethical things he's done. <laughs> so he figured out that he couldn't have people watching him work his medical magic on people. So what he would do is go to the lower decks of the ship and find some of the seamen's rooms and pretty much uh, commandeer them and put quarantine signs on them. And anytime somebody was sick or had any basic needs down there, he would bring the officer or the crewman down to the below deck into the quarantine zone and then he would proceed to just load them up with penicillin and wait about a week of that and then afterwards most of them would be fine oh god (laughs) it worked look i'm not I, i don't have a medical degree i'm not a doctor i can't say whether that's the right decision or not but I will say that usually the simplest solution is the best one. I do not have a so medical degree, it, and I can tell you right now that is not. The solution. So once again, he would check his he would check his manual, and also here's the other technique he did to learn some things. When he was still over at the uh, Navy hospital, he would go to other doctors and ask for a second opinion on one of his patients' of course, cases. For of them. course, yep. This would do one of two things. Number one. It would give him the answer to what he needed to do. Uh, number two. It would make it seem like he's listening to his colleagues. Yes. It mm-hmm. would endear them to him. It was just, he was good. He was good at what he did. He's a team player. I mean, but like in that situation, can you imagine the like, hey, oh, uh, you know, we have this, this criminal who comes in. He's, uh, you know, he, he's got a cut on his hand and it's infected. And what does he do? Hmm. Gross. And just walks away. Like, <laughs> <laughs> what? what's next? It's kind of interesting because I've seen a couple of things in psychology. Like uh, there's a book by Maria Konnikova. Uh, actually, uh, that's the book where I learned about Fred. It is called The Confidence Game because it's about con people. And she was saying that one way that a lot of people gain trust in others is not by saying, what can I do for you? They start by asking for a favor from somebody, like kind of um, like prostrating yourself in front of them and asking for help first. Right, right. It, it's kind of like... Um, well, in a like, professional field, and especially like, I don't know, maybe this is an American thing, but... There's always a little competition, right? And so, like, the idea, like, of going to somebody else 
who is not like a threat to you, but you know, it's like, oh, when I ask you a question, it is me admitting gaps, right? It's like you're you're exposing your soft underbelly a little bit. Yeah, because like I'm better than you, and you know, you ask me, oh, wait, what? <laughs> No, but I no, I agree. So, I agree so with what you're saying. Know, we never asked Josh anything ever. <laughs> what was Josh's role here? I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're you're absolutely right. I, I, there is something to yeah, seeming... like if you admit you don't know something, you could see it as like, oh well, like it could impact your next raise or it could impact your standing. Like doctors, doctors are like, I am a premier in my field. And to say like, I don't know the solution right. is a good thing. And I'm sure plenty of doctors do it. But in, yeah, you ask somebody, you are telling them, I need your help. You are knowledgeable and I respect you, right? You're, you're especially in something as advanced and medical, something that requires so much education and so much commitment. I'll to tell like you this. Humble yourself like that is probably not something they see all the time. Um, I don't want the most self-confident surgeon in the world. <laughs> it's uh, it's funny too. I actually had this. It's I can't. Talk. We're talking about like work ethic now. <laughs> no, no, no. But like it's Bootstraps. it's the analogy that I bring up for quarterbacks. I, I I don't mean to bring it into sports, but here we go, boys. Uh, I don't ever want a quarterback that that doesn't throw interceptions. It seems so counterintuitive to say it, but like take no risks. Exactly. I want a quarterback that's going to try to push the ball and take risks. Risks. Now, I don't want him throwing twenty five interceptions in a season, <laughs> but like if he's not throwing any, then that tells me that he's playing it safe and he's not somebody I want to move forward with personally. But that's kind of how I look at it. So you want a quarterback? I want a quarterback that just rushes, pretty much. Just you know, that's called a running back. QB sneak. Oh. So anyway, um, I think the the best insult I ever heard about an idea was actually our buddy, um, um, our buddy who I'm not going to say his name, uh, but he I remember him dropping the line one time. He goes, "Man, that makes about as much sense as running a running play in NFL Blitz." <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Right? I was like, "Like, God damn it!" It's He's so, so specific good. and every like. Who did a running play in Blitz? I don't, not once. And I have many hours in that game. <laughs> so here's where Fred's confidence does come in. Why did he do this and think he'd get away with it? Well, because he was under the impression that barring battles, accidents, and conditions like lung cancer, strong men rarely die these days. So I guess. And our army is strong. Not against lung cancer, though. <laughs> Behold the might of the Canadian Navy. I probably shouldn't laugh at lung cancer. <laughs> I don't know why I chuckled. Continue. <laughs> so on one of Fred's first shore leaves, Fred got to experience his first run-in with love. So while Fred was in Halifax, he actually ran into a uh, Navy nurse named Catherine. And while she introduced herself when he walked up to her, she said that she didn't want to know his name. They just wanted to be around each other and just experience each other at first. To was the his point response, where, hello, nurse. Yeah, I think nice. he brought up like a flower to her and he, he had some sweet talking ways. But long story short, they hit it off pretty well to the point where eventually he had to think about he she gave him just enough time to think about whether he should admit his name is Dr. Joseph Sear or Fred Damara. He unfortunately went with Dr. Joseph Sear. Mm -hmm. And this put a lot of stress on on Fred's brain because as this relationship kind of went on and on and on. Fred realized that he was kind of um, scared that he didn't know if it was Joe falling in love with her or if it was Fred falling in love with her. And likewise, if she was falling mm -hmm. in love with Fred or Joe. 
There may have not been much difference between the two, except for maybe the name, but Fred wasn't so sure about that, and we can't even be so sure about that. There's a Stanislavski joke in here somewhere. I'm just not finding it. I'm actually, I'm actually, you know what? I'm going to hit you with this one. I'm thinking about the DJ Qualls movie, The New Guy. Where he goes to a new school and what? pretends to be what a, a badass. So like, and he's he's this new badass Dizzy, and I'll never forget yeah, that he's fallen, pretty much that <laughs> he's fallen in love with the girl, and like she goes to kiss him, and he's like, right before he's like, I need to tell you something, and she kisses him, and he's like, I'm dizzy, and she's like, I know, <laughs> and like, you know, whatever. That's anyway. That's all I thought about when reading this. So here's how Fred ends up turning everything into Looney Tunes once again. He, I think, legitimately had a lot of anxiety over this. Like, in general, as a person, I think he had a lot of anxiety. Like, obviously, he was confident externally, but also he was always questioning himself to some degree. I think one of his most famous things is, like, um, when his autobiographer was showing him a book that he was looking at about con men or such, or, like, the confidence stuff, uh, Fred said... I don't want to see that book because I don't want to meet myself and I don't, cause I don't think I'll like him. So he didn't like to be too inward about himself, but he liked to be very inward about the characters that he played. Yeah. Now he was thinking that he might die in the field or something like that. And she is trying to like get discharged soon, like two weeks and she's looking to get married soon. And he just wasn't ready for that. So he did the most reasonable way of ripping the bandaid off, which was enlisting himself to the Korean war. As one tends to do. Yeah. Um, he tried to do it on the low, though. He was just like, I would like to enlist myself. Just, you know, keep it low, keep it low, 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 low. Didn't work out. Uh, all across the cafeteria and a bunch of the buildings and the shifts, <laughs> there was the brave Dr. Joseph St. Cyr, who volunteered like a true patriot to go to the Korean War on his own willingness. And this got plastered everywhere. Actually, I guess I didn't think about this. So I guess he would be kind of like... He's fighting in a foreign war, right? Because Canada wasn't involved, right? I don't know. Canada actually, was involved. Okay, I actually, like, legitimately, I know I'm the history major. I should know this. I actually have no idea what Canada's involvement was in the Korean War. He just didn't get assigned to the Korean War yet. They were they were there. Okay. They were there. They yeah, part there. of my ignorance, y'all. That's actually, I I really just, I have no clue. I don't know much about the Korean it's War. That's all right. Uh, almost <laughs> nobody knows about the fucking Korean War for some reason. Um, the but it war, was baby. A, it's a really bad one. Not that any were good. Um, but, you know. Uh, so, he gets shipped off to there. And right before that happens, Catherine manages to throw a party for him. And he was supposed to go from Halifax to Montreal to ship off on a different ship to go to Korea. And the, is there anything about how she like took him volunteering? Like, oh, she was very livid about it. Yeah, I was going to say, way, like, I feel like that would I feel like that could not have gone over well. No, um, at the same way, I want to get married. Fight. I'm going to war. She said she <laughs> yeah. understood, though, by to, choice. She said she understood to some degree. And. She said she felt like, you know, um, if it's what he needs to do, it's what he needs to do. However, on the party the night before he shipped off to get on the train, she got him very drunk and made him make a lot of promises. I don't know if it was under some other conditions as well, but she made him have a lot of promises. Just like, promise you'll come back to me. Yeah. And you'll promise we'll get married. And he says, yeah. When he wakes up in the morning, he forgot that he agreed to getting married that day. Yeah. Before leaving. So... As soon as he was on the train going from Halifax to Montreal, he sees not only Catherine, but some of her friends and family and a priest on the platform uh, about a couple hundred feet up. So, Fred, so close to having a really romantic story. So Fred jumps <laughs> out the train car. Yeah. 
He's not playing around. <laughs> they get on the train eventually as they're waiting for him after about an hour, and she goes sits in where his seat should have been. He eventually feels bad seeing her crying. They go and talk, and she says, no, I was wrong to trick you like that, but at the same rate, please come back to me. So, as far as I know, they were good from that point on. But here it comes. He ships off on what would become pretty much the defining moment of his life, uh, or the defining boat of his life. This would be the HMCS Cayuga. And he was off to Kobe, Japan, and eventually over to Korea. And this is where Fred's crowning achievement would happen. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Buckle up, children. <laughs> so the second he even got on the Cayuga, his first patient was the captain, Captain Plomer, <sighs> who had a uh, golf ball-sized cyst in his mouth, or like they said grapefruit or golf ball, depending yeah, was, on which was, text you're reading. It was a reading. toothache, too, huh? Yeah, it was a toothache. Yeah. And Fred, sorry, Dr. Joseph Sear, yeah had to work on the captain first and foremost. So he cleared out the room, went down the de- to the deck after he cleared off the table to start working on the captain while everyone was watching. And he said, give me a minute. Goes downstairs, starts drinking a little bit, is going through his uh, field guide mm-hmm. and finds the right pages eventually. Eventually they start like saying, uh, doctor, when are you coming up? This guy's waiting to get operated on. <laughs> he goes up and... One second, I'm naked. Starts to work. And luckily for him... It wasn't that difficult of an extraction that he had to do because he said that like with the force that he applied as opposed to the force that it needed, he almost fell straight back onto his ass for how easily it came out. Um, Then he patched him up and everything. And the captain said that that was the best oral uh, surgery he's ever had done on him. So Fred, as Dr. Sear, keeps just like getting these like softballs thrown at him and it ends up working out for him. Then the big moment happens. (laughs) On one particularly stormy day with the Cayuga rocking hard, this is off the coast of Korea, by the way, the sailors noticed something portside. A small Korean junk, which is a type of ship, uh, floated by the port side of the ship. And upon looking down, the crew in the Cayuga saw the junk scattered with blood and bodies. Some of them were still even alive. They had been ambushed and were clearly dying. Dr. Sears saw this and immediately started heading to the bowels of the ship to talk himself up. He knew what he'd have to do, and he was terrified about it. He didn't want to have to take someone's life, even if he was trying to hardest to save them. Eventually, Captain Plomer asked Joe if he was up to the task of treating the wounded. Note, he didn't have to do this because they weren't Canadian military. And there's actually another thing, too. Well, two things. One, the ship wasn't equipped with sterile equipment or to sterilize equipment. So... They were kind of shit out of luck there. And two... Pretty easy to give it your best shot, quote Don't let my lack of air quotes being seen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so the ship actually wasn't equipped for to sterilize equipment or anything like that. And the other big problem was he wasn't actually a doctor. Yeah, I mean, that's like minor compared to the sterilization. For those of you just yeah, tuning you know, in, yeah, yeah. he is not a doctor. Yeah. He is not so, a medical professional. It yeah. turns out that this Dr. Joseph Sear is actually a man named Fred DeMara, yeah. and uh, he's not a doctor. Welcome to Rumor Flies, everybody. I'm Greg. <laughs> uh, this man actually never graduated high school. Uh, but, you know, it's whatever. Yeah, fake he until dropped you ma- that at 16. That's this just is, insane. This is the fake until you make it guy. Uh, so Fred actually took up the challenge. Sorry, Dr. Sear did. Here we go. And 19 wounded Korean sailors boarded the ship, some of them with wounds as bad as a full puncture wound through their chest from either a bullet or shrapnel. 
three were deemed to be in critical condition. So Dr. Sear took him on the ship and he figured out a game plan while the men's clothes were being removed by the other sailors. He had some rum and initially planned to treat most slightly wounded first, thinking that some of the worse off died before he could even get to them, and somehow this would absolve his conscience uh, more than, like, botching a surgery. Like, he technically didn't have a hand on there. But there's also something called, you know, death from negligence. Mm -hmm. But um, that's what he was fighting. Either I give my best shot and they die, or um, I just conveniently work on the easy ones first and... They die. I don't know which one I'd pick, honestly. Bit of a kind of a railroad problem, right? Or the was it the the, the trolley? The trolley. 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 Mm-hmm. That's it. Thank you. Trolley. So, eventually, he would change his mind, though. He commandeered Captain Plummer's cabin since it was bigger than the sick bay, and then he had a chaplain and other assistants help him get the first and worst patient in instead. He decided he was going to go full ham and try to save the person that was in worse condition first, which I would say is pretty fucking admirable. Um. So I believe his words were "fuck it, we'll do it live." Yeah. Wait, what does it say? <laughs> this table sucks. <laughs> it was a man bleeding from the chest with the foreign body still lodged inside him. He put the man under aesthetic and the Korean liaison said the young man on his table said, may God guide your hand. Dr. Seert said to tell the man that he had just prayed the same thing. Captain Plomer said for the next few hours, Dr. Seer was in control of the ship. Over the next two hours, Dr. Sear would pray furiously and profusely sweat as he operated. However, at just the right moment, Fred's mind shifted from nervousness to matter-of-fact confidence like he had done this a million times. He felt like he had been the reincarnation of a veteran surgeon at that moment. He opened the man's chest, found the bullet in the pericardial sac of the heart, removed the bullet from it, stopped the hemorrhaging, and successfully sewed the man back up. He'd actually done it. He was able to, uh, he, what did he inject? Something that basically coagulated. He yeah. was able to seal up the, the heart from, uh, seal up the, the wound from bleeding even more. Now, note, Fred was a fake, but yeah. he was also a fake that did his research. Mm-hmm. He did put in the time to read medical journals, especially stuff like some of the more like fringe cases, like actually operating on a pericardial sac, according to uh, the author, was not an easy thing to do at the time and maybe not even now. Um, I couldn't do it. No, I don't think I could either. Uh, and also, fun fact, that man walked off that ship 12 hours later. Yeah. Not only that, Fred worked through the rest of the night getting to the other 18 men. Mm-hmm. Um, and zero of them died from the surgery. Um, but let's be let's 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 I, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But this also creates another small problem. And We'll get to that in a few minutes. I don't want to take anything away from him, but actions have consequences. So Dr. Sear was celebrated as a hero. And then promptly after celebrating for a little bit, he went to sleep and he slept for what he thought had to have been two days. The thing is, he was really riding on this high to the point where he had done something for somebody. He had people that looked up to him and were indebted to him that like he made a difference in their lives and he wanted to experience that after he woke up. But by the time he woke up, the patients were already off off the ship. They were already on a boat all the way to something called Chinampo Island. Hope I pronounced that right. And at that point, Fred felt something dear ripped away from him just as he had got to experience it for the first time. He felt like those people, those men were part of him in terms of like an experience. And he just, he wasn't ready to let go of him essentially. But he was granted permission to visit the island to check on his patients. And he went very, very, very fast. Um, and he actually, when he got to the island, 
worked and <laughs> pulled some of the Navy's resources to improve the conditions of the island's medical facilities. So he saw that like a lot of them were like in dirt, like uh, huts and stuff. So just to point this out, this is where I was going with this. He was very upset about the state of the medical facilities on, on the island. And so the fake doctor said that something needed to be done about the lack of proper care for these medical facilities, which is hysterical. But he also, and this was the problem that I was just referring to a moment ago. The problem was is that he took it upon himself. Once again, somebody with no medical training or license, but I mean, God, God's honest truth is he's probably more of a doctor now than, than, than some people operating on people and removing bullet wounds <laughs> or whatever. But um, he took it upon himself to actually volunteer on the island to help people that needed it. He was really, really big on volunteer work. Yeah. And as much as I sometimes want to give Fred uh, the benefit of the doubt for this, this is where kind of like this his, is reckless. This is where his 1950s starts to like shine through a little bit. Yeah, I was Because at some point yeah. you're thinking like there's something where you always have to wonder. This guy is clearly a con man. We know this right now yeah. in, you know, 2023. We're just like, OK, well, this guy's a con man and shit. Um, however... <laughs> He did seem like he was doing good on the island, but it probably wasn't just for the benefit of them. It was for the benefit of himself because when he was there, he did improve the conditions. Uh, he made sure they were left um, not wanting for much else in terms of like medical needs. He even performed some operations. Like I was saying, he did the reading. He read about a certain lung procedure in the Lancet and he had to eventually perform that procedure and he did it just fine. However, he kind of got to his head because one of his quotes from uh, The Great Imposter was, quote, I was considered some kind of good white god, unquote. So, uh, yeah. Uh. There's just, I, I, and you know, I think like, I, I imagine this doesn't need to be said, but just so people know that we three, uh, y'all kind of touching on this, like. We're the white What he gods, did was, so. Im- <laughs> no. What he did was immoral. Yes. The position he was in, putting people's lives in his hands, getting lucky, and even being really fucking smart does not absolve you of your moral culpability. Uh, okay. And no, no, gross no, no, negligence. Whatever good he did yes. on the um, ethical scale of everything is absolutely below and ground. All, like in all the, agree on this. I just in the Earth's like, mantle. Yeah. I just hope in case there's anybody listening who thinks we don't get that. Like, we are sitting here going like, pulling our hair going like, oh my God, he pulled it off. In the same way you're like, watching the villain pull off the heist. Right? Like, it's amazing these people survived and good for them. And like, there are nine other versions of the story where they don't. Yeah. You know, so we fully get that. I just want to throw that out there just so no one thinks that we're like, oh man, you know what? Ultimately it was good. He was there. No, a real doctor should have been on that yeah. boat. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway. Um, a med student would have been more qualified. I was going to hold that for the end, but I was like, I know I'm going to forget to say it. So sorry, please no, continue. No, no. Fred, like, <laughs> the thing is. You're just like, oh no, he's about to op. There's 19 dead people and here. You can't believe but it. But you get to hear his words about and everything, and it's just like, well, he's already operating on them. I guess he's the one I got to root for right exactly. now. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. Because <laughs> otherwise, I'm just like, yeah, he needs to get his just desserts. These people need to fucking die, and he needs to get arrested <laughs> immediately. He needs to learn his lesson fast. He needs to learn his lesson with the with the make sure there's a high enough body count in the process. You hear that, Sky Daddy? <laughs> Teach him a lesson. He he gets into such high stakes that you don't want him to learn his lesson. You, no, he he doesn't. There's the option like, of him learning his lesson so means people. somebody else yeah. fucking dies. Yeah, <laughs> so he just puts you there like. Go I'm okay Fred. with one bad guy getting away if a bunch of people die. This isn't losing a hand of blackjack. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, please continue. So he's overextended himself now on the island. 
So eventually, Quote, report- good white God. Yeah. Um, <laughs> eventually, a reporter came to like do a little puff piece on him for the Navy newspaper, and uh, he did the interview. So the puff piece, after it got detailed a little bit, the reporter came back for a more detailed piece. And since the first article didn't really have any effect on Joe the first time, uh, especially with the small circulation that it got, he decided to do it, and but it wouldn't really affect him. But he was very wrong about this because this article was distributed all across Canada instead, not just the Navy. And eventually a true Dr. Sear in Edmonston would be repeatedly telling callers that they are mistaken. He is not that Dr. Joe Sear and that there must be dozens of Dr. Joe Sears all across Canada. Wrong. <laughs> However, whenever he was informed that he was in fact the only Joe Sear in Canada, he decided to look at that article. And he was a bit horrified when he saw the article included a picture of Joe Sear... Dr. Joe Sear, who was in fact his good f- friend, brother John Payne, who was Dr. Cecil B. Haman, who was actually Ferdinand Damara. Mm-hmm. When word got to Captain Plomer about this, Fred decided to implement folks law again. He stormed out and he bought himself some time to drink himself to alcohol poisoning. Like he actually drank himself to like literally had to be yeah. hospitalized for yeah. it. While he was waiting for punishment, Fred received letters from Catherine. She was angry, heartbroken, and wanted to die. But she realized that she loved the man, no matter what his name was. Kind of sweet, but also she needs to reconsider that a little bit. There's a lot to unpack there. Maybe seek some therapy. Uh, Fred's trial and discharge was quick, mainly because the Navy didn't want to be embarrassed by the entire situation. So they had this whole Navy hero that turned out not even to be a doctor. They didn't. They wanted to be as far away from this situation as possible. He ended up serving no time for this. When Fred attempted to cross the border back into the U.S., he was detained suspiciously for having $1,000 on his person. The authorities couldn't pin anything on him that was outstanding. And the deal was, he actually did have a long rap sheet. And the only good deed listed on his record was planning a pine on Route 99 in Blair, Washington. And Fred later commented to... Uh, uh, to Crichton, uh, his autobiographer, that if everything eventually went south, he'd go back to that tree and hang himself from it. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So he got consistently... So Josh talking about uh, that woman definitely would need therapy to unpack all the lying <laughs> and all the, you know, what she was subjected to. But I'm sitting here and like, all right, we need to redirect this. <laughs> like, like, Jesus Christ. So Fred eventually drunkenly made his way back to Lawrence. He came clean to his parents and he decided that he really hadn't done many good things for him. I'm for sorry. His life. I just, I, I think about how that conversation went. How was your trip, honey? Like, what do you, what do you say? <laughs> well, how was Korea. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. Um, as penance for himself, since once again, Fred had to be his own judge, Jerry and executioner. Nobody could punish him worse than himself. He wouldn't allow that to happen. Um, he was a weird grandstander. <laughs> he decided that to do something good for his parents so Fred decided that he wanted to make it up to his parents. So he went to Life Magazine and decided to do a piece for them for $2,500 so he could buy presents for them for Christmas. He decided he wanted to just get some nice presents for his parents, you know? And I honestly think that this is I Fred's... lied and endangered dozens if not hundreds of people, but, you know, I got you these nice tchotchkes. This, <laughs> I think, is Fred's biggest self-sabotage he would do to himself for years to come is agreeing to do this Life Magazine piece. Because it's distributed all across America, mm-hmm. you have a big picture of him, and now everybody knew that Fred was a, this is where he got the term, like the great imposter for a bit. He was full and, of shit. Yeah. And he was now a known quantity in America. 
Yeah, he just painted the bullseye on his own back. I got to ask though. So like I was reading through this, I I couldn't help but think about how he had agreed to do the interview that got him in trouble. Right. Uh And like, as much as this dude was like God fearing and self-flagellating and all these things, it's like, there had to be some ego tied into him doing this life magazine thing. Right. He always managed to justify it to himself in some capacity. That's what I'm saying. It's like, it's like, it's the worst thing that happened, but like, you don't think he kind of like, for lack of a better term, got off on the infamy a little bit. So do you know how much oh, sure. what y'all think? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. Not mean, to kind of get into our like ending wrap up too early, but like it just, I couldn't help but think about that. Fred was obsessed with leaving a mark on the world. Yeah, yes. right. It's like, um, it's, it's, he it's, wanted his brand is not his brand, but yeah, legacy. He it, just from everything I've surmised from him, um, he wanted at any cost, whatever corners cut to be seen as a quote unquote great man. Yes, and he wanted to be wanted. But there's a lot of ways to be a great. Oh, you mean man. the guy who called himself the good white god had a had a uh, hero complex. For the record, <laughs> when I say great man, I don't mean good man. Capital G, capital yeah. M, great man. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, no, He's, Ryan's absolutely right. And it's funny because and this he, is a little bit different than like the Ann Rand great man theory. I'm just talking about the idea. <laughs> oh, is that different? I was wondering. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Honestly, I'm not too sure. <laughs> I'm honestly not too sure. No, but it's like, you know, hey, I, I these people were dying and I'm like, I saved their lives on that ship. Like they needed medical assistance and I was there in their time of need. That should count for something. Yeah, but we're going to completely Replacing gloss over the, the fucking gross there. negligence <laughs> that we went through. And like you, you operate, you, your hand was inside of another human being and you had no idea what you were touching, what you were and doing. there would have been a doctor there. Yes. That's the thing. If you're the only person there, and you're like, all I have is a little booklet, but there's nobody for 300 miles. That's one thing. But you're there because you took someone's spot. I and- think like inside of <laughs> Fred saw himself as like this infinitesimally small balloon that was worth nothing that he kept having to inflate over and over and over that's again. A very, but, that's a very good analogy. But, but also at the same time, though. He had to make sure people saw the space when he, he took. When he went to enlist in the in the Canadian Navy, like they he went to enlist and he was just like, well, if you don't take me, I'm going to go. I'm going to go join the army. And they were like, what? And he's like, yeah, you know, I want to leave now. And so normally a process that would take two weeks, it took him less than a day. Like the, 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 one of the officers told him that normally it's a two week process, but they really wanted a fucking doctor on the ship. I think so. That that's why the, he, he bypassed all that. So the, the, I, I did notice that and I chose not to put that in there because the person who reported that was Fred. That's it. Um, oh, really? I know, yeah. There was no real cooperation about that. Um, even like uh, Robert Crichton was just like, yeah, I don't know about that. Like uh, Fred says that was the case, but nobody else has told me otherwise yet. But yeah. I haven't been able to find it. Possible, but not verified. Yeah. Um, the, I'll tell you this. The Canadian Navy wasn't going to be talking to Crichton about anything. Oh, God, Fred, no. So. I don't know. So, yeah, take it as you will. May have happened. May have not. Dr. Sear it was makes a for great a man and was a, was a wonderful influence and a hero to the Canadian Navy. Mm. So <laughs> Fred eventually floated around some more and he eventually ended up working at a mental hospital. And he eventually got very uncomfortable when he was there because while he was there, he noticed that a lot of the patients, some of the most, quote unquote, mentally unwell or insane, as he would put it, saw him and like were most attracted to him fastest. Like, He got them and they got him. He was like a magnet for them. And eventually it became, it distressed him because he started not to be able to tell the differences between the people outside of the hospital and inside of the hospital. So he had to quit this. Um, And he eventually took up the 
um, moniker of Ben W. Jones, a respected man from Texas with the credentials of a Mississippi-born and Georgia-educated person. So, oh, wait. It gets better. I know. And this is where he tried to shape up a little bit. He That's... joined the Houston chapter of Alcoholics Anonymous as Ben Jones. And he, of Who? course... Ben Jones. Oh, okay. Um, and he eventually made good with the Episcopal Bishop of Houston. And this would eventually get him a job as a bookkeeper at a hotel. And the problem with Fred is, once again... He was too charismatic. He couldn't just be a bookkeeper, which he wasn't also qualified to do, but he read enough like little books and periodicals and how to be a good bookkeeper, and he did his job just fine. But the manager was like, we're wasting talent by keeping you uh, back here and everything. Like, you, you cannot stay back here. We need to put you at front desk. You're too good of a guy. You're too friendly and everything. You're overqualified. And this sent Fred into a tremor because as Ben Jones... He could not be out in the front of a hotel for eight hours a day, running into people from all walks and stripes and everything, seeing his face, and then eventually being like, hey, aren't you that guy that we just saw in Life magazine? Now, okay, I, I want to take a moment here because I want to ask you guys a question because I think it's a very interesting discussion. Obviously, there was no internet. Do you think people paid that much attention to the newspaper and like remembered faces that well? To where like it was ingrained in them, and if you saw them on the street, you would recognize them. Time yes. in particular has a very unique, probably a strong word, but it's got a very strong legacy. Like Time Magazine, the like, per, why does everybody know about Person of the Year? Right, like it's it's Time is definitely a storied periodical, and at a time when like you got to realize people don't even really have TVs in their homes yet, so yeah. Like, that's it. It's print media, baby. Yeah. And the high budget print media was the, you know, major networks of their time. Also, Fred didn't look like your standard cut, copy, paste white guy from the 50s. He was like a blooming figure. He was big. Well, he I, was like pretty distinguishable. extra time in the oblivion character well, creator to make him look good. Yeah. So like, well, I, I get, I get, so I get from the sense that like, if you're going to a hotel, it's likely that you're traveling, which means it's likely that you were flying or a train or whatever, which is, means that you more than likely had a newspaper with you. So like a I, high volume of people. No, too. this guy looked like Lenny from like of mice and men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I get that. I just, I always find that interesting where he's like, he was worried about being seen. But when I was, when I was thinking about it, I'm like, is he really going to be, I mean, I know it's always a possibility. I guess it's kind of a, it only takes one situation. Another yeah, thing to, I, that's true. That's an, true. Another thing to really consider is think of all the number one general social platforms. Any of us are on, even if we abstain a little bit more or less than the other person every day. Um, we have so many things to take in. We see so many faces in our phones at all times that, of course, we can forget things very easily. But usually with these periodicals, you have to buy every Time magazine. You have to buy every like uh, New York Times and everything. Like Every print piece is something that you're going to spend a lot more time with because you spent money on it, and usually it's the only thing you're carrying with you at times. You're reading on the train and all that stuff. You, I feel like back then people were able to retain a little bit it's less information that they're able to retain longer because less stuff is being pushed out of their head because more stuff is coming in at the same time. Yeah, and I get game. And I guess when you read the when you read the paper, like you're paying attention because that's the only way you got news that wasn't the radio. Also, somebody who reads an article like that, that's like it's kind of a thrilling, crazy cat and mouse game, right? Like, like 
there's gonna be people who read that story and see his face and go like, wow, that was wild, right? And they tell their friends about it. It's like they remember. There's also the fact that I believe they call that viral. When you're reading something about this great con man, where they probably flourish the words a whole lot about how Fred was and his demeanor and everything. Like generally, when people met him, he came off as a pretty big teddy bear. Yeah, there was a lot of things that Fred was considered threatening. Wasn't one of them. Yeah. However, yeah. I imagine that if they're talking about somebody called the Great Imposter, it also comes out as this giant thing of like, look out, America, you might get conned by this man. He might be right around the corner. So if there's a Time article that comes out and people might have in their mind, just like, ooh, there's somebody that's scamming people all around the United States, they could run into him anywhere. So they might actually have his face in his head. Yeah. It might be just doing too much conjecture, but I'm trying to put my idea in like how that happened. And like, I think, I mean, it's, like, it's a valid question. I hope it don't sound like we're shutting it down. I just think like, it's a very good point. I mean, it's, it's but yeah, I think it, if he only saw a hundred people, you know, a month, that'd be one thing, but he's seeing hundred people, hundred people yeah, a yeah, day. Yeah. That's fair. You know? That's fair. I do like your theory though, that they're traveling, which means they're going to be reading periodicals and magazines. I think that's really like, I'm starting to get into like big data questions now. I think it's actually <laughs> a really interesting, like if X number of people travel by the end of this number of days and they buy this number, this, you know, this amount of time magazines moved in this region by this much, there's like all kinds of actually well, really I mean, interesting I, math involved. You got to think about it though. Like, like Who's most likely to read the newspaper? You're like, okay, working class, males, whatever. But also, like, travelers. And, like, who's coming to the hotel? Traveling salesman. Yeah. So, Fred eventually saw a job posting for a prison guard and applied Fred style. Meaning, instead of directly applying, he intentionally sent his application to higher offices and made sure that, uh, to pepper the recommendation of the bishop. Like, he just made sure the bishop that he had known was left in that uh, little application right there. Wait. Since he sent it to the wrong department. Yes. Okay, yes. That's why I want to make sure you're going He got this. a letter back saying, yeah, he sent this to the wrong department, but we did forward it to the right one, and he made sure that he sent it to the department higher. So that meant that the application was going down from higher-ups to the proper department Damn, that he, he applied is, to. I, he's it so fucking smart, dude. It never stops impressing me. It's amazing. Like, it, I just, you hate, you just like, you gotta give it to him. Fuck, I just gave it to him. Um, but yeah, so this gave him some extra appeal and he was shoot in to the prison system. Yep. And he- This is actually Ryan's strategy. He sent his resume to Bill Gates <laughs> and now he's gonna be running a division of Microsoft. I mean, this shit works, y'all. Anyway, so I'm gonna be the uh, leaving this podcast to work at the CD, <laughs> to work at the as the head of the CDC. Um, <laughs> Ryan was the head of, brought Ryan, to you by Skype. Wait, Ryan was behind the fire Fauci movement the whole time. No, that's me. <laughs> You're such a rapscallion. I, I sent a letter to Joe Biden saying, "Grandpa." <laughs> Can I work for the CDC? <laughs> and then it just got sent down to the CDC and it's a direct thing for the president. And he was like, this, it's so weird how that works out. This little corn pop's going to be good for the job. So anyway, um, Fred was not ethical, but he was a little bit moral to some degree. Like he didn't like to see people suffer yes. and he wasn't trying to hurt anyone. He no, was staunchly pacifist. And also he didn't want to harm anybody. Like, you know, you saw the whole thing. He didn't want to even try to, save somebody by operating on them and accidentally harm them and kill them. Right. And guess what? He was in the Texas prison system in the 50s. So you can imagine there were probably some shortfalls here. I'm kind of watering down some of the things that he experienced there. But um, so this is the way that Fred saw. And this is from The Great Imposter by Robert Crichton. This is how Fred saw the Texas prison system. The Texas attitude is simple. Prisons are for bad people. They are punitive institutions 
not corrective ones. While you are in there, you are being punished, not pampered. If while in there, someone happens to see the light and get corrected, that is so much money in the bank. But the guiding principle is to isolate man from society as a gesture of society's revenge. The fact that this is not even remotely supported by facts has never apparently caused the Texas legislature many moments of real concern. The theory is an eye for an eye with the state getting the hog share of it. The prison system is, amazingly enough, self-supporting, quite possibly the only self-supporting prison system in the world. There was one other legal drawback in Texas, which was to have much to do with tomorrow's success there. Texas does not yet have proper laws governing criminal insanity. If you go mad in a genteel way, they send you to a state hospital. But if you take out your paranoid delusions by shooting down or cutting up people, you are most likely sent to jail. The result of this policy is that there are at any given time several hundred complete, partial, or potential mad killers in the system, threatening at any time to, to disrupt things in a manner that is at times hard to believe. These paranoids are not screened out beforehand, but generally go through the usual routine until they do something serious such as beat, stab, or in any way attempt to harm or kill either guards or fellow prisoners. Sooner or later, they wind up in the maximum security section of the Huntsville prison. Huntsville prison was pretty fucking bad at the time. Probably still, you know, I don't know. Um, but long story short, their practices, especially towards the black prisoners, were terrible to the point that, like, at some point, some people would, like, slash their hamstrings so they wouldn't have to go out and work at the fields. <laughs> um, and the response to this was uh, the higher-ups would say, okay, that's fine. And they'd let them just keep bleeding until they came begging for food and water, like crawling, literally. So it was bad while Fred was there. But he thought that he could actually do a little bit to turn the place around, fortunately. Um, so old Cap'n Jones, as Fred became to be known, or Ben Jones, rather, asked to be transferred from active guard duty to recreation officer. And he was actually granted this transfer. In this position, he organized letter writing sessions for the illiterate, along with checkers and dominoes tournaments with prizes like half days from the fields. Uh, he tried to set up some study sessions, um, but had to settle with a ping pong table instead for whatever they gave him because they wouldn't give him too much literature. Um, but he also pushed for like movie sessions. He tried to at least make the quality of life a little bit better for the prisoners. Not that they would be anywhere near good. Um, but he was especially good with conflict resolution. Uh, he at several times was able to talk people down that were like trying to be cornered in a cell with like a knife or something. He'd walk up to them eventually just be reasonable with them instead of like keep throwing threats and eventually disarm them and talk with them for a little bit. However, <laughs> sometimes he would also use his previous knowledge of um, anesthetics and tranquilizers from his medical days. <laughs> so occasionally the way he would like help to talk down some of the prisoners is by hitting them up with like propothal. Not great, but you know. But let's focus on the fact that he treated them like people instead of property or or pri just prisoners. We'll just go with that. Well, one. he did succeed with uh, flying colors because he eventually went over to work for maximum security and he did really well because he went by one policy. Treat them like animals. They'll act like animals. Treat them like my house guests and they'll act like my house guests. So shoot them up like my horse. Nighty night. Keep the bed bugs. And down. what he meant by this is like when he went up to the prisoners, he would actually say like, uh, oh, how are you doing, Mr. Josh? Instead yeah. of just saying... Prisoner number 36, he would say, 24601. He'd say, oh, how are you doing, Mr. Josh? 
And like he would just do those little tiny bits of respect that nobody else had experienced from any of the other prison guards. And so while he can be commended his ability, you know, he also, once again, used tranquilizers on some people when they were particularly uh, acting up. But he didn't ever tell any of the other guards as they just thought he was a miracle worker. So within a month, he was assistant warden of the prison. Yeah. Like, this is how well he was able to, like, excel here in terms of not only reducing conflict, but also improving conditions and just making life better for the prisoners and the guards to some degree. Pretty much bare minimum. So, you know, they're not seen, they're not traded like animals, gets him like assistant warden. Like, that was the, that was what got him there. It's like, oh my God, they're people. We yeah. have to treat them like people. Things end up being a little bit better. What? Imagine that. He actually ended up uh, helping the scouts in the area arrange a Christmas drive for the prisoners. Like, he worked, he cared about the people around him. Yeah. Um, which included uh, magazine donations. And um, one prisoner found a particular copy of Life magazine oh, that no. made its way to the warden. Why does that LS. sound familiar? Folks Law would strike again. Once again, when attacked, attack back. Uh, um, when cornered, attack. Pocket sand. And Fred actually thought that this was his best performance he's ever done up to this time. He packed everything up. Um, pretty much he yelled when he went to Obi Ellis's uh, house with the family and they confronted him and he said, how dare you would do this to me? I just get assistant warden and this is how I'm rewarded. You know, this is how you treat me like to doubt my credentials to say that I'm this man. This man doesn't even look anything like me. Um, and he once again made sure as before he stormed out to pick up the copy of life magazine so they wouldn't have time to look at it even more. <laughs> he eventually packed up everything and then drove out of Huntsville, Texas for what he thought would be the last time. And eventually he found himself pissed drunk down in Key West, where as he tried to uh, cash a check as Ben W. Jones, it would bounce and it would lead to his arrest. And this is when Fred would actually go to prison. However, he would eventually get off since pr the prison, the Huntsville prison, like many other institutions, didn't want to acknowledge that they had the wool pulled over their eyes that badly. It was, he got away with so many things. He was in there for like not paying off a loan in a car, the bounce check. There was a couple of other things. And then he, while he was in custody, he was saying like, I have information that'll like blow the lid off of the entire prison. If you don't, like, he kept making threats pretty much saying like, I can take y'all down with me. He was pretty much just using everything he had in his book. Um, however, when he was in jail, Fred received a letter from his crewmates on the Cayuga. This said a lot about the guy, I think. They knew who Fred was at this point. They knew he was a pretty much top bastard man that could have killed a bunch of people from negligence. Yet, they sent him a Christmas card when they knew he was like locked up and a copy of a poem by Burton Braley called Loyalty. Greg, do you want to read a poem real quick? Hell yeah. Now, this is from the crew on the Cayuga, the ones that were their lives were in his hands. Indeed. He may be six kinds of a liar. He may be ten kinds of a fool. He may be a wicked high flyer beyond any reason or rule. There may be a shadow above him of ruin and woes to impend. And I may not respect, but I love him because, well, he's my friend. Because, well, because he's my friend. You I can just cut it there pretty much. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty much the way it was. Like, they still respected him to some degree. However, once again, Fred's sense of martyrdom had to catch up to him. <laughs> And he was almost upset that everybody around him was forgiving him so easily. Like he was just getting off the hook left and right. And he was just like, wait a minute. I thought I was going to like, 
I thought it was going to be taken out in the town square and uh, shamed in some like grand manner. And it never did happen. So um, he decided that he needed to set himself on the straight path as penance to himself to some degree. And he quit drinking for like the fifth time in this story. And uh, he found himself in New York as a man named Frank Kingston. He started working in school for mentally challenged children. And he did good at the job, as he was prone to do. But he was eventually visited again by his worst enemy, which was boredom. He had to leave. He just, nothing was happening there. There wasn't any excitement. And he probably could have done just fine there for... Probably forever. Yeah, to his death. But he couldn't let life be normal. And... uh, Eventually, uh, by some sort of bastard fate, Fred heard a radio program talking about the North Haven School in Maine soon being teacherless. So with the help of the New York State Board of Education papers that he stole and the Brooklyn College papers that he borrowed, Fred was able to shed the name of Frank Kingston and instead become the well-credentialed Martin Godgert. And he made his way over uh, to Maine. And he lasted there for a while, once again, ingraining himself in the community. Boy Scout troop leader. Yeah, Boy Scout troop leader. Teacher. Teacher, school bus driver. Mm -hmm. But eventually, he was visited by a police in 1956. And after being shown a warrant and threatened with arrest, Godgard admitted his real name was Ferdinand DeMar Walda Jr. However, the cops are just like, "Um, are you Dr. Robert Linton French? Are you Brother John Payne? Are you also known as Dr. Cecil Boyd Haman? Are you also Ben W. Jones? Oh, also, are you Dr. Joseph St. Cyr? They they went through so many different things for him. And as he collected things from his car, this is where Fred really like outshines if the story is to be believed. But I think it was corroborated by some of the actual officers that uh, Robert Crichton talked to. Fred said, if you're worried I have a gun down there, don't. I do, I mean, but I wouldn't shoot anyone if I would, uh, and I wouldn't shoot myself. Know why? I'm afraid I'd miss myself, and I couldn't stand that. I'd look ridiculous. Once again, he wanted everything to be on his own terms, pretty much. Mm-hmm. That's why, like, he wanted it to be the moment when he was exposed to be on his own. Like, when he got punished, he wanted to know the conditions of it. He wanted to be in control of every bit of his fate, all the good, all the bad, and how it would happen. Um, and he just didn't want to look ridiculous. That's the main thing of his life. And I believed him. I believed that like, if he was embarrassed enough, he'd be just in between a rock and a hard place. So as the police took him to Mainland, Fred was once again ripped away from something that he considered dear to him. And it was the people of North Haven. He did generally care for him, but just didn't work out. And eventually, Detective Nickerson, upon hearing Fred say that he doesn't love life, said, Greg, can you do this in a... um." 50s PI oh style. God, here we go. <laughs> you know you're in trouble? I've studied that record of yours too much to not know. You expect too much out of life, and when it doesn't pan out, you break and run, or you put on a disguise. I feel like a toots should be in there. <laughs> toots. <laughs> <laughs> so, Fred. You're smart, see? But you got no heart. <laughs> you got no heart, kid. <laughs> so, uh, Fred was tried in Augusta and eventually charged guilty. Uh, for the main premise of quote cheating by false premises, they, they just he had such a big rap sheet that they just kind of put it on one little thing. One, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> he was found guilty, but all defrauded institutions failed to press charges out of embarrassment <laughs> once again. Are we three for three now? <laughs> yeah. yeah. After the dust had settled, Fred was approached by author Robert Crichton to pen an autobiography on him. Fred accepted. 
and the two men went on a tour to the places of Fred's or whoever he was at the time's past. So this is where the other book that I have not seen a whole lot reported on in uh, current media about Fred. Uh, this is a book called The Rascal on the Road, where it is Robert Crichton's personal account of the time he spent with Fred going back to all these places. And this is kind of more of a um, personal focus that I want to switch over to before we wrap up Fred's story, because this is where, like, I'm not a psychologist. I haven't spoken to Fred directly. All I know is the things that have been described about him and the things that I've seen of him on the throughout the time. Like, he actually has been in movies at some point. Uh, he was on a game show once. Uh, there's a couple of things where you can kind of get a feel of how he operates. And also, even though he might be lying about a lot of stuff, there's some stuff where when he describes it's just like, it doesn't seem like something anybody would want to lie about in the first place. And this is kind of the important things that I picked up from him. So Fred had an almost psychotic aversion to accepting charity. Uh, for instance, before Crichton and Fred set off on their tour, uh, which, by the way, Crichton kind of had to prove to Fred that he was that as impulsive as Fred in order to take him with him. Like, <laughs> he, long story short, Fred, he talked to Fred and Fred was like, nah, I don't want to do it or anything like that. And then when they were about to go take Fred back to his hotel, Crichton just decided to start driving. Mm -hmm. Didn't even tell his wife who was pregnant and about to have a kid well, and just good. started driving across the, the country in an old rickety car. And Fred was like, you're kidnapping me. You'll never see the end of this. I'll kill you for this. You're kidnapping me. All right. So where are we getting food? <laughs> <laughs> so before they set off on tour, a friend of Crichton's uh, offered a house to Fred for a few days in New York. And Fred constantly bungled the name of the person that lent him an apartment while he was away. And this guy was named Don Nestigan. And Fred would call him, okay, I'm going to go back to Nitrogen's apartment. Okay, I'm going to go back to Nesting Hen's apartment. Like, just always mess it up. Like, if somebody showed him some nicety that he couldn't repay back or wasn't expected to repay back, he would just rail on that person and try to demean them. Like, it was a sense of just, like, pride. It's a defense mechanism. Like, he didn't like charity towards himself. Yes. And then he also had this quote, and I think it unfortunately holds up probably better today than it did used to. <laughs> than it used to back then. Remember this, and don't forget it. There is nothing more vulnerable and unreliable than the truth. And then also, once again, another quote for him. As long as it seems like the truth, it works like the truth, and thus it becomes the truth. That's very fair. Like, think about how many stories we actually have wrong. And as I said earlier, upon being offered by Crichton to read Why You Do What You Do, it's a book, Fred said, the day I open that book is the day I cease being what I am. I don't want to know why I do what I do. I might not like what I find out, and I don't want to know who I am. I might not like him when I meet him. So he is introspective in the fact that he doesn't choose to be introspective because he knows that there'll be more problems for himself if he decides to dig too deep into that. But it feels like everybody else can read him pretty well after getting to know him long enough and knowing he's a con and such. Um, all I can think of is that scene from FS or family. It's like, no, you take those feelings, you put it in a box <laughs> and you hide it and you never open it and you never think about it again. And it's going to just, just keep shoving it down. You just keep pushing it and just keep pushing it down. Don't think about it. But here's the way he's <laughs> here's the ways that he worked around it. And it was so interesting because when back, when he is second time around at the Gethsemane monastery, um, since he couldn't talk Trappist monk stuff, he had to like find ways to keep his uh, like his desire to talk sated. 
And what he would do is in his brain at night, he would have theological debates between Anthony Ignolia and Dr. French in his head with Fred being pretty much the moderator of the debate between the two. Like he was, he had these people drawn out so well, probably better than he could understand himself that he was able to figure out what a theological argument between two people that were ultimately him that he just designed some aspects of would be saying. And he was trying to figure out which one he would agree with more. It was like his own, like, Fun locutionary way of playing chess against himself. That is a five dollar word right there, baby. What? Sorry, please loc- locutionary. My God. Sorry, sorry. I, I thought you no, were... I'm not knocking you. That was did you, very. Did, that was did you take beautiful. the ACT recently? I think we should all. We all need to take a. Can you check if that's back. a word? <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't need to. The truth was it. If uh, if it, it sounds like the truth, it acts like the it becomes the truth. It sounds like a word, then it becomes a word. No, I don't want somebody to be like, this jackass just a locutioner. It's not even a word. No, it's a word. Yeah, I think it's a word. I'm just like, holy crap. That was uh, that was well done. Now, if I used it right, that's a different story. <laughs> so anyway, he also, uh, <laughs> at one point on the road, they ended up at a Southern chicken joint where Fred was so hungry and upset. Like He also considered himself to be a gourmet. Don't fuck with Fred's food. Make sure he gets the best of it. The best of the best, pretty much. Um, and this chicken joint slighted him so badly. Like he watched the guy throw a frozen chicken into a fryer for a little bit, like no batter or anything. And also he saw the guy would sound smart, throw a bag of mashed potatoes into the top of a coffee maker and then throw some peas in there too. All of them were still half frozen when it came out. The chicken was half raw. The guy was so happy to see him. He's like, he walked out and he was so pissed off and everything. Like Fred was so fucking upset. I would and then too. eventually on their way back, they ran into the same chicken joint at some point. And when he realized where he was, he left as soon as possible. And when the sudden chicken joint guy said, uh, y'all come back now. Fred said, the day I come back, I'm coming back with a gun. Not to shoot you, <laughs> but to shoot myself. Because that's the day I'll know I've gone mad. That's amazing. Um, he also floated around as uh, an unspecified alias and also a guy named Arthur Moreland for a little bit. This is what we know in like Fred's like gray zone of nobody was really tracking him at the time. And this is my personal take on Fred's motivations. And we can talk about this a little bit. I think that this is Fred's deep down self. He wanted to live a good life and have a lasting positive impact on as many people as possible and be remembered with high esteem at any cost people were his playthings, but he wasn't one to abuse his toys like look how many times he earnestly wanted to be like a man of the cloth Mm -hmm. he wanted to help in his own way even if he was doing it dubiously fred also made a point to make sure that he would punish himself more than anyone else could i've said that already he needed to be in control all aspects of his life even due to justice doled out to him um, he, and also, in my opinion, never had anyone in his life that he could take his guard completely down around. And that was probably the thing that affected him the most. Yeah. I don't think once, even Robert Crichton, I don't even think once Fred had a friend. There was one time where there was somebody that he looked up to that he talked about when he was trying to go talk to him, uh, that Crichton saw and Fred refused to say who he went and saw and came back. But I don't think Fred ever, ever, ever thought he could let his guard completely down around somebody or share himself with somebody. Like, his one... Um, Which goes goes back to, oh, 
uh, what's her face? Catherine. Catherine. Thank she you. didn't show back up in the picture of her after like yep. the last thing. Like, um, and he was never completely forward with her in the first place. No. Um, I think a lot of him, his own ideology is like, he, be- he believes himself to be a good person or he wants to believe himself to be a good person. And whatever way is, is a motivation of he, of him seeing someone as a good person. That's, that is what he wants to do. So like he's the ends are justifying the means because it's allowing him to do things that would make him great. So whatever that takes is what he's going to do. And I, and I think that is very telling of who he is as well. And I do actually really like the idea of, like you said, Ryan, he, I don't think he ever really ever completely brought that guard down or let himself be vulnerable. Um, I mean, I'm sure there were moments where he was, but just he never truly seemed like he ever had someone or something to really give himself to outside of himself, if that makes sense. He also had like small acts of rebellion pretty much. When he was crossing over from Arkansas into Texas to go back to uh, Huntsville, Mm -hmm. they were pulled over by a cop at one point, and they checked in the trunk and like apparently they had picked some like uh cotton and mm. just brought it with them as like a souvenir the cop checked their trunk and saw there was cotton he said i gotta confiscate this is illegal um Ar- arkansas cotton ruins texans co- texas cotton it blights it the, all these fields will be gone it's just like a little i guess state pride or whatever that he had against arkansas the cop so but fred kept this in his brain because when they were on their way back from Huntsville, which didn't go well, um, he was embarrassed once again after going back to that prison and coming back because Obi Ellis described Fred as a giant teddy bear. And that pretty much made Fred not seem like the great man that he should be. He wasn't larger than life. He was just a big, nice teddy bear. Yeah. Um, he wasn't somebody to be seen on like, you know, a pedestal. Right. Fred was pissed off and he was so pissed off that this transferred just from OB Ellis to the entire state of Texas. So on the way hmm. back uh, out of Texas, he made sure to get uh, Crichton to pull over on the side of the road, the border, pick some cotton from Arkansas, and then made, went and made sure to plant it back in Texas afterwards <laughs> before they left. What a spiteful little fucker. Yeah. Um, but some other interesting things that he did was he went to a revivalist tent one for fun. They just passed by a revivalist tent for fun. That was uh, hosted by uh, T Texas Tolliver, Candy Kane, and music by Billy Joe Suggs. Fred, that sounds all completely believable. I want you to think about how much of a kid in a candy shop Fred probably is at a revival tent. Oh my God. Yes. He went up there and he pretty much was just, he did a whole thing of, he saw the preacher, uh, T. Tolliver, and he saw Candy Cane talking about like how they were sinners in the eyes of the Lord at one point, but they were saved. And then Fred got up on there with a like little like air-blown car horn that he could step on that he took with him all the time. Mm-hmm. And he started yelling at the crowd about, you think you're sinners? Oh, y'all are spotless white sheets compared to me. Uh, the stained, dirty, black rug at the door. And like just oh. that type of thing and stomping Woe everything. Is like, me. like No, just saying like, you think you're bad. You yeah. don't know what it is to be a sinner. But I was saved. Like that type of thing. Like just making sure like, I was saved too. But you don't know how bad I had it at that point. Gatekeeping sinners. And he was a hit. <laughs> but Really? Yeah. And even more so, like he just enjoyed seeing how he could affect people. I, I was going to say, I think he enjoyed being in front of a crowd and seeing the reactions. Yeah. Uh, he liked the attention. I mean, another thing, when he was in Arkansas, 
Fred looked to prove his versatility to Arthur uh, to Robert Crichton by deciding to make a big speech in the middle of a town square in favor of integration in front of a very hostile audience. And he got the responses of, I don't like what he says, but I like how he says it. And they say he even what? Like, convinced. Yeah, like they like the message, even though, he, you know, yeah. don't agree with it. I got you. Yeah. Um, to be clear, not my point. And here's the point where Fred and Crichton split up. And this is kind of where it starts to end. Crichton, the entire time he was on the road, would be calling his wife, who was about to pop. Yeah, she was about to pop. She was about to have a baby. And Fred heard about this. And he said, wait a minute. Why are you like paying so much for a doctor to deliver it? I can do that, you know. I worked in a hospital. I delivered babies and everything. And here's where Crichton started to accidentally absorb some Fredness. He was constantly, he told his wife the first time, hey, just so you know, Fred like wants to deliver our baby. And keep in mind, his wife had read the Time Magazine article and thinks that like there was a chance that Crichton wouldn't be coming back. He thought mm. that he'd be killed by this guy. So she was like, no, absolutely not. You tell him no. No, thank you. No, thank you. He's like, yeah, you're right. I should tell him no, thank you. Goes to Fred and knowing that Fred had the last word on the book being published, like he had the right to last word. Mm -hmm. He was like, yeah, she said she's excited for you to, uh, <laughs> she said she's excited for you oh to deliver the baby. And it eventually all came to a head to the point where when they finally got back towards uh, New York, Robert decided to go ahead of time over to their apartment complex and find a girl that he knew that lived over that like one of his neighbors and said, look, I need you to be my wife for a little bit. Okay. Here's the story you delivered about two weeks ago. It was twins and uh, they're still in the ICU right now. They're, they're still in the neonatal natal unit. Um, but I need you to play this off. So he Crichton managed to devise a plan to get Fred to meet his fake wife and then eventually about his fake who had his fake children. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Just to like kind of be like, oh, well, the, the delivery already happened. We didn't make it in time, Fred. Sorry, you can't deliver or anything like that. Fred eventually found out, though. And also Crichton's wife was pissed off the fact that he I never... don't blame her. Yeah, you can imagine. So he had this whole plan devised, but eventually Fred found out anyway that the babies had not been delivered yet and the oh, plan, beforehand the, yeah the, pl out. the plan actually fell through so she didn't get to like act as like his wife oh okay 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 so this destroyed fred he was like okay you've betrayed me and everything and he disappeared before the book could be finished but eventually Crichton managed to get in hold of him again and said we, we got to finish this book and fred said fine i'll do it whatever hmm. so eventually they finished the book but I can't wait to tell this part. This is where I get into stuff that nobody else knows about or put together, I think. On Fred and Robert Crichton's last meeting, pretty much Fred said, I thought I could have like settled down, just had a normal life, but I think I'm going to take off again. I'm about to go out and find myself a new life somewhere as somebody else. And Crichton was like, okay, that's fine. Yeah, I, I get it. Um, I wish you the best of luck. And uh, Fred pretty much, as he was leaving... Before he got in the cab, he said, oh, yeah, um, by the way, uh, your hometown is this place, right? He's like, yeah, why? He's like, oh, and uh, your parents' names are this and this? Oh, and he's like, yeah, why? Oh, no reason. Fred's parting gift to Robert Crichton was stealing Robert Crichton's identity and yeah. taking it for his next venture before he would pretty much not be seen again for a long time, especially by Crichton. That's amazing. 
Now, here's an interesting part. A 2002 New York Times report and a famous, uh, famous radio host, Casper Crichton, mentioned that Casper had been interviewing Fred's biography author, Robert Crichton, no relation to Casper Crichton, only to realize halfway through that he wasn't interviewing the real author. The report did not specifically say it was Fred, but I cannot see any other no, universe. No, it was 100% him. Fred was going around impersonating for fucking the interviews for Robert. That's incredible. It's how, just... I want to know how he found out about it. I've looked so hard for his radio interview. I cannot find it online. All I can do is find the report. But that... God damn. That's amazing. Once again, one other thing that happened to Fred was after the long tour, Fred eventually ended up again as Martin Godgert in fucking Alaska of all places at an Inuit school. And he did great for a while until (laughs) the uh, most photographic memory trapper on earth saw Fred on an ice road in goddamn Alaska and said, hey, you look familiar. I think I saw you a couple years back in a Time magazine. Fred had to get out of there immediately. Are you serious? Yep. That one Time article ruined so many of Fred's prospects. Well, there was that. Uh, never mind. We talked about that. Never mind, never mind. So anyway, he also goes to Los Angeles after he saw the movie uh, Bridge on the Kwai River, which made him want to be a, bu- a bridge builder. He decided he wanted to build a bridge. Oh, my God. <laughs> so he took both the identities of Carl Shelby and R.C. Springham, then headed to Yucatan Pen- uh, Peninsula in Mexico to help build a bridge. However, wouldn't last long due to the heavy eye on Fred from customs. And he definitely didn't want to end up in a Mexican prison. Don't blame him. Yeah. So he decided to go work at a prison in Cuba. What? Yep. But the Batiste regime, this is before Castro took over, was super paranoid, reasonably, about an American coming over to work in a Cuban prison Mm. and sent Fred back to Miami while cuffed in a plane. Um, And then eventually, on June 25th, 1959... Headlines in the papers uh, revealed that the gentle masquerader was added again. After abruptly disappearing, uh, the school board of Winchenden, Massachusetts, discovered that the English, Latin, and French teacher, Jefferson Baird Thorne, was actually the great imposter, Fred DeMara. November 12, 1959, Fred went on a show called You Bet Your Life with, of all people, Groucho, Groucho Marx. Marx. That was his game show. Yeah, that, uh, that whole episode's on YouTube. Later... In 1961, Fred went on to paper himself again and led a career working as a consultant for the Union Express Rescue Mission, the largest homeless shelter at the time. He held his job down until 1964. That year, Fred managed to set up a boys' youth school in North North Fork, California. This didn't last long. People found out about Fred's past, and authorities showed up quickly to scoop up the boys. Fred seemed confused and said that he may need a lawyer. But before he could get one, he had allegedly stolen the school's car, a very Fred thing to do, and drove to Los Jesus Angeles. Christ. He did eventually turn himself in for Grand Theft Auto. He got off on that charge in Medina County. Then shortly afterwards had to fight charges of, this is the yikesy part, he had to fight charges of child molestation, which he was cleared of. Now, I don't want to just be like, yeah, Fred got away with it, but pretty much the way it went was he got off because... He was the Fred's lawyer was able to show that the story didn't corroborate from the boy that was accusing him. Mm-hmm. And he was showing essentially the boys were pissed off about Fred punishing him um, a little bit too much, being too strict on them. So they decided to pin it on Fred and said that he molested them. What I can say from this is that he is officially not um, guilty of that, but also like 
he's also the fucking great imposter, a great fucking liar, yeah, and also the lawyer. Yeah. I am not leaning on either side of the fence with it. I am not dismissing it. I am no, but also it's a, saying, it's a point to be brought up. Relaying how the story went. saying it, yeah. but obviously very yikes. That being said, <laughs> there have, from all the other places that Fred had worked, there has never been a report of him acting improperly around any kids. Yeah, so that's just, that's that. In 1967, Damara actually got his first legitimate degree in Bible college at Oregon. Wait, repeat that again? In 1967, Damara got his first legitimate degree from a Bible college in Oregon. That's a funny statement. A legitimate degree from a Bible college in Oregon. Okay. I mean, there are Bible studies degrees. Yeah. It's a thing. I, it, continue. Yeah. He wanted to serve as a Baptist minister as a church in Oregon, where he was uh, well-liked according to most known accounts. However... Once again, his past caught up to him, and some parishioners began to believe they were being conned by him. Like, once they learned, they were just like, okay, we know who you are, but then it became too much, and he had to move to Tuttle, uh, to Tuttle, Washington, and eventually served at the Tuttle Lake Community Bible Church for the next few years. In 1970, the New York Times reported that Fred was presently in Friday Harbor, Washington, working as a cleric at San Juan Baptist Church, and then as a bus driver. And then he was eventually featured on the Tom Snyder show where he spoke about his occupation as a chaplain, not about being the great imposter, but being as a chaplain. Hmm. Yeah. He was also in like a couple of movies and uh, eventually became friends with Steve McQueen. Not only that, he supposedly delivered last rites to Steve McQueen. Wait, what? Yeah. So he wow. eventually found himself at his final place that Fred would be at would be the Good Samaritan Hospital in Orange County in Anaheim, California. And he was a visiting chaplain. And then unfortunately, his diabetes rendered him no longer fit to work. He was allowed to stay at the hospital as a resident, but eventually his condition got so bad that his legs had to be amputated. Now, the account saying that um, he delivered last rites to Steve McQueen this is around the same time that his diabetes was getting so bad to him that he probably wasn't in good enough condition to even deliver last rites to Steve McQueen. Mm. So I don't know how true this is, but it's something that has been reported. Um, eventually, in June, 19, in June 7th, 1982, Ferdinand Waldo Damara Jr. died of heart failure at the age of 60. So... He didn't live too, too long, but I mean, I tell you he what, lived a fucking full life. Yes, that's for sure. He crammed it all say, in in that 60 years. Jesus. And I just looked it the, up. He does have an IMDb page. Yeah. Uh, I think one was called The Evil Hand or something no, like that. He has that. one. It's called um, the, there's the Something Hypnotist. It was, uh, but he only has, it only has one credited movie, but that, you know, it's just I know he's in a horror has. film. Yeah. He played a surgeon of some sort. Fun fact. He didn't like acting. Huh. Fun enough. He, he. He didn't I, like when people knew he was acting. Yeah, I was going to say, I guess he he liked uh, ma making people believe it was a real thing. Though he was ultimately a chaotic figure in many lives, Fred did leave some good in his wake. Thanks to Fred, several codes and regulations have been updated to better standards, meaning it's nearly impossible to paper people in the way that Fred did now. Like sending back and forth, trying to get people's records so that you can collect your own. Like Identity theft is a lot harder thanks to Fred. Thanks to Fred. Uh, big quotations. A pretty charming movie about the great imposter is still in circulation today there, there was a movie about fred made of the same name the great imposter and several communities were left with fond memories of their ignomatic guest and lamineus college and alfred still exists now as walsh college so something that he had to build from the ground up is still standing today i don't think anybody died because of him awesome yes 
However, uh, this is the story of what I would say is probably one of the most well-intentioned and irresponsible person I have ever, ever learned about, period. How do you feel about Ferdinand Waldo Damara Jr.? I'm not sure I agree with well-intentioned. He Besides is, that. <laughs> his own intentions were well for himself. Yes, yes. I was like, greedy, selfish. <laughs> the amount of self-service that he's willing, the lengths that he's willing to go for himself is at a whole new level than I've ever really sat down and like processed. I think he never went out of his way to hurt anybody else though. Well, that no, was and thing, it, that's, right? that's hard. That's like, that's, that's one thing I, I don't want to, this is going to sound fucked up. That's one thing I'm, I'm struggling to grasp because he never did anything to hurt anybody, but he was so hell bent on himself. He couldn't even, he couldn't even coach a football team because that many had to train kids to hit other kids. Yeah. I think the better way of putting uh, it know. is that he endangered a lot of people. Yes. And somehow through it all, as unless I'm misremembering, it's a very long episode, somehow through it all did not directly lead to anyone dying, probably caused a lot of mental anguish. I know obviously his wife, obviously that is a very clear um, he never got married to Catherine. Oh, sorry. His his would have been wife. Um, he Catherine. but he clearly traumatized her. I'm sure, and you know, hurt her very much. But yeah, like you know, the whole idea of the you know the EBM concept, right? Was the are there victimless crimes? I think like this. Oh, this a character, lot of people lost money because of him. That's well, for gonna, sure. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think yeah, this yeah. that's what makes it so interesting, right? Is that like in the most he is. There are not victims in the conventional sense. <laughs> I should read or right? He never <clears throat> tried to physically harm anyone. Yeah, right. That's what I'm saying, right? Yeah. Like, like he didn't murder somebody. He did save lives. But it's like the whole thing we're saying is that he recklessly endangered people. He, you know, stole people's identities. He was, it's like, but this weird, like fractured moral backbone he had led to this weird code of ethics that was very, Th- weirdly threaded throughout his life. Yes. I mean, that's what makes this story so compelling, right? I think <laughs> like we're not like rah rah him, he didn't do anything wrong, but you are there's there's no denying there's this weird nuance to his morality that we have not seen. The, the, I'm not gonna before. I'm not gonna call Fred this because he would like it too much, but I feels like <laughs> he was going for the title of noble scoundrel. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And not in a Robin Hood way either. I'm a thief of the code, right? And like... It's like the reckless abandon of like self-service. Yeah, right? And like, but he wouldn't have killed somebody to get himself out of a situation, right? Like he was presented with an opportunity. Yes, and he was just like... Like he could have done that and he didn't. But it's always like, it's a like silver lining to a very dark cloud. Yes. I would it like just happens to, that he's a very thick silver lining in his dark cloud of a life. Under yes. no <laughs> under no under no other conditions I would like to say like no qualifiers here. I am acknowledging that Fred put people down in a quarantine area so you could shoot them up full of penicillin until they magically got better and crossed his fingers. Uh, yeah. <laughs> unconsensually and unknowingly to even the other guards shot up a uh, Prisoners with prisoners tranquilizers. with tranquilizers to help him calm down and get out of like a um, psychotic situation. Uh, he also, once again, never said, "I'm going to need some help on these 19 surgeries." Uh, like, or just said, "Hey, I might not be the best person for this. We should probably get somebody else." Uh, 
Fred did a lot of bad shit with good results. That's the weird part. Uh, that's yeah. That's so yeah. That's where I'm gonna land on that. Um, I think not yeah. somebody to look I know up I'm to. Captain Caveat. So I apologize. I just there is no. So I think it's what makes the story interesting, right? Is that it's like he's fucking fascinating. That's the way to put it. Like yeah. if somebody, if he had, and we are going off a mixed bag of sources, some of which are him. If if to our knowledge, he has not killed anybody. Um, there is this like the story would be completely different if somebody had died in this case. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And that's what's so interesting to me and is that I, it's and like, he would have been completely different. Yeah, I I just what a just what a bizarre fucking story. Yes. Like that's all I can say. This is just I like we obviously don't give any pass what this guy did, but you just gotta sit there and you're like, no bus, just what a wacky story. The funny part I don't is even know, like, how to unpack it all. He's the person that coined the term fake it till you make it. It's just if I was reading a also, book. Also, if it sounds like the truth and it works like the truth, then it may as I well. Just, I love I love that though, right? Like if I was reading a book and like the plot line was his life, I would have I would have stopped reading and been like, this is absurd. Like this this is this is fiction, but it's not even like remotely in the believable fiction. There's like universe. seven stories in this episode that are standalones. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So sorry for like <laughs> trapping you in this room with me over two sessions to like get this out. Oh, just no, like, it's not even that. It's just, it's I, just what I, do, I dove. So when I was done with the Mankind United stuff, I was like, I need something else to obsess over. Here's an and, easy parallel we talked about before, right? Catch me if you can. He pretended to be a doctor. That is incredibly dangerous. He but like, pretended to be an airplane pilot. <laughs> you know what I mean? We all enjoyed Leonardo DiCaprio. He pretended to be an airplane pi- airplane pilot. Pretend to be an airplane pilot. Technically, Jordan Belfort's the most moral out of the three. <laughs> you know, get the ludes. <laughs> I will not die sober. It's so good. <laughs> Sorry, continue. It's so good. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you guys got anything you want to say after this uh, very special episode of uh, Everything But Murder? I just hosted by Rumor Flies and on the Rumor <laughs> Flies feed. <laughs> I just yeah. I I there's so much to unpack. I I think like if there's anything we didn't handle delicately, we apologize. There's a lot to cover, <laughs> but I just think that I, I think no. Okay, so no, no. I'm just I just, I just throwing that out there. It's like this guy like. What a story. I just, I know it keeps saying, I was like, what a story. Dear listener, uh, we threw out a lot of opinions about this. A lot of like, probably overly cautioned ones at the same rate. But I would like y'all to know, just I'm interested in how y'all feel about this in general. Because at some points through reading through all of this, at one like sentence of this thing, I was saying, what a fucking piece of shit. And then like in another, I'd be like, oh, wow, that's actually pretty good. It's a Bonnie and Clyde thing, right? You know what they're doing is wrong. But there's kind of a like, fuck this, like watching this guy navigate like the medical world yeah. and the military, academia, and get away with it, right? Like the whole thing, just like he they're fucks not trying with the clergy. He fucks with the state. He fucks with medicine. Well, this and dude, that's... there is no stone unturned with but this like dude. But like the way that he understood everyone else so much better than himself, when his whole thing of just um, academia wants to hire a piece of paper, they don't want to hire the person. Like that type of thing. I'm just like, wow, you're kind of right about that type of stuff. Well, it shed a light on a lot of, like you said, he, a lot of holes were plugged because of this dude. Like, and he got away with a lot of it because they didn't want to admit it. Well, wait, so how many of those people in prison do you think actually had a better life for the short time that he was there in charge of them than their actual life before they went to totally prison? Totally possible. I think it's going to take more than Fred DeMar to fix a Texas prison in the 50s. But um, I mean, yeah. that's fair. But like, it's just, it's it's things like that where it's like, 
I see the good that you're doing. I appreciate the good that you're doing. Stick it to the man. You know, like I'm, I'm all about it, baby, but like not at the expense of potentially, you know, sticking your hand inside someone to try to get a bullet out of him. And hopefully it's the right one. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so you can find us at, uh, where? <laughs> uh, oh, also, this uh, you're probably hearing this on the Rumor Flies feed, but this is also on the Everything But Murder feed if you just want to get, like, condensed just our true crime stuff eventually. We, we're going to keep doing this. It just, it's going to be released periodically. Whenever the hell we feel first. like it. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever we feel like it. Yeah, there's going to be a separate little feed just of our, our little true crime experiment. So, yeah, um, you can find us at Rumor Flies on everything. I know we have been a little quiet uh, there are too many children running around. That's my um, fault. There. <laughs> That's my um, fault. But we are we are getting back into the flow of things, and we are. Josh is like, guess what, guys? We have another future rumor flies listeners. Like Josh, it's much easier to get people to listen than just you know have a kid to enforce them to do it. You know. <laughs> I'm buying new phones every day just to subscribe on iTunes. Every listen counts, baby. Uh, but no, please, uh, as always, hit us up. We do respond, I promise. And thank you so much for listening to Rumor Flies. Uh, we love you guys. We love doing this show. And uh, I'm making it sound like there's like a season finale or something. I, it just feels like this has been such a huge project and episode. It's drained <laughs> me. But can I just actually know? I think it behooves me to say Ryan did 90% of 95% of the work on this one. And I want to thank Ryan for all the hard work he put into this episode. Oh, no don't thank feat. me. Wait till you catch the bouquet, motherfucker. Thank you, Ryan, for all your hard work in this episode. And for all just this is this is a huge undertaking. So thank you for spearheading it. And this was such a fun ride to hop on. It was my pleasure. Thank you for being here. I, I completely agree. And I rolled a, a D20 to see how much I want to say. And I got a nat one. So I guess my <laughs> response is we were recording. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. Don't put that juju on me. All right. So uh, uh, for this episode of everything but murder, Hosted by Rumor Flies. I'm Ryan. <laughs> I'm Josh. Still Greg. <laughs> Bye.